Welcome to Woven. We've been in a series for the last season called Soul Food, where we've been talking about spiritual practices that feed us, good things that we can do to nourish our souls. Uh, we're going to take a break from that series and uh, probably come back to it in the fall. There's still a lot more spiritual practices that we can talk about. But in the deep summer season, I'd like to talk about uh, something different. And we've had some requests from the congregation in the past to talk about something called apologetics. <clears throat> and uh, as a staff and the volunteer team talked together, we decided that this would be a good uh, midsummer series to teach, not just for our adults, but for our children. Um, for our young people, I know you're here, and I'm going to try to explain apologetics to you um, for all of us, but how many of you have ever watched The Lord of the Rings, even if, even if you were probably a little too old for it? Well, in The Lord of the Rings, you have a character who grows up in the safety and the confines of the Shire. If you haven't seen the movie, you might have read the book. Something happens where Frodo one day has to step outside of the Shire. And the minute he steps out of the Shire, he steps into a whole new world and has to face all these new adventures. Friends and young people, you will step out of the Shire one day. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. When. And as you explore the wider world, as you spread your wings and as you discover things, sometimes you might find that you've lost your trail back home. You've lost your way back to not just the house of your parents, but you've lost the way back to your Christian faith. How do you find your Christian faith? And so that's what this apologetic series is about, finding our Christian faith and also helping others to find the Christian faith. Apologetics is not the same as apology. It's different when you apologize for something. An apologetic is not about an apology. It's a defense, actually, of the Christian faith. This is what we really believe. And throughout the ages, there have been different people who have defended the Christian faith. One of the earliest was somebody named Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived just shortly after the time of Jesus. And in case you can tell by his last name, Martyr, he was, he was killed for his faith. I think of C.S. Lewis as another person Today, I think one of the best defenders of the Christian faith is somebody named Tim Keller, who is alive today, um, and I, I personally think he's today's C.S. Lewis. And so, for this apologetics series, apologetics, once again, that means to defend your Christian faith. For this series, we're going to be um, talking alongside this book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It's a very good book. If you have a chance, um, I want to encourage you to pick it up. Today in particular, I'm going to talk about finding your way back to the Shire. And the title of today's talk is The Clues of God. The Clues of God. If you've ever been in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts and you've wandered through the woods, they might tell you, leave a trail of breadcrumbs. Probably not. That's more like fairy tale stuff, right? But they might tell you, break a branch or twist a leaf or something like that along the way so that you can find your way back home. What are the breadcrumb clues that can lead us back home in those confusing times when we've left the Shire and we're on some great journey of life and we're trying to find or refine our faith? Three breadcrumb clues that I'd like to leave for you today. The three breadcrumb clues 
um, as we make our way, actually, and we read concurrently with John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And you can see those verses on the inside flap of your bulletin. I'm going to make my way through these uh, verses, this first chapter of John, and talk about these three breadcrumb clues that lead us back to God. So, young hobbits, you've left the Shire, you've wandered well, you've been on a journey, you've traveled through the forest, somebody, it's like somebody took you and spun you with your eyes closed, spun you around ten times, and when you open your eyes, you don't know where left, right, up, down, let alone how to get back home. The first clue that will lead you back home, the first fill in the blank in your notes, is beauty. Beauty. The first clue is Beauty. Um, let me explain what I mean here. Uh, I was out of town last week, and I came home last Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And in the last seven days, you know, when you're away for a bit, and then you come back home, and you're together with your loved ones, and it's, it's just nice. It's fun. I enjoyed my time. One thing I particularly enjoyed was just sitting down to dinner. Since it's summer season, my kids are a little bit older. We'll stay up a little bit later at night. We'll watch movies, um, you know, we'll play video games. And we'll eat dinner at like 10 o'clock. And the other night, we had this wonderful spread. It was so good. And I was sitting back, you know, it's like a two-hour long dinner, and just talking with my family and enjoying what was on the table. And, you know, that moment where you're just thinking, man, this is, this is beautiful. This is perfect. This is life. This, it can't get any better than this. This is, this is as good as it gets. And that's something that I think all of us, from whatever background of life, all of us can relate to that experience where at one point, even if life is not that good, there are still those moments where you're like, this is perfect, this is beautiful, this is good, this is life. What I want to say is those moments of sublime goodness, those moments where it just feels so right, those moments, remember those moments, those are the clues of God, those are the clues of God. Those moments of beauty, those moments that really touch our hearts. Um, Leonard Bernstein was the conductor of a great uh, orchestra in New York, the Philharmonic, and he once said this about Beethoven. Beethoven. This is one of the greatest musicians, one of the greatest music directors of, of the 20th century, and he says, Beethoven, now that's somebody who turned out these pieces of breathtaking, breathtaking Rightness, that's the word, rightness. When you get the feeling that whatever note follows the last is the only possible note that could happen, possibly happen at that moment, at that context, at that instant, it's the perfect note that follows the next note and so on, you know you're listening to Beethoven. Beethoven has the real goods, the stuff from heaven. He has the power to make you feel at the finish that something is right in the world. That something checks and follows order and law consistently. There's something that you can trust. When you feel like all is right in the world, you are listening to Beethoven. And this is something that, being an artist, I understand. When I went to art school myself, you think that you go to art school and they say, just feel, feel, throw colors onto the canvas, feel. Actually, no. One of the first things we had to learn was composition. That you don't just throw colors, you place color and you place shapes and objects in certain positions on a canvas so that you know it's ordered. 
composition, structure. These things make sense in an artist's mind. Now, at this point, I might have lost some of you because you said, well, that sounds like a creative, right-brain, florid, artistic, artsy-fartsy kind of person talking. Here's the thing. When it comes to music and it comes to art, underneath music and art is what? Math. Composition. Artistic composition from a, from a visual standpoint, it's really Euclidean and Pythagorean geometry. Musical structure. What he's talking about, what Bernstein is talking about when he talks about Beethoven, there is mathematical structure to music. So this is not just a right brain thing. It's a left brain thing. It's for the analysts and the engineers and the math lovers as well. In other words, when you see a work of beauty, when you see something and it's right and it's ordered and it's structured and it just makes sense, in your soul you know that there is something called beauty in the world. You know that there is beauty. Friends, what I'm saying is this. When you lose your faith, when you don't know you can believe in God or Christianity anymore, the first thing that will lead you back in the right way is beauty, goodness, Will it convert you? Will beauty convert you? Wow, I'm looking at this beautiful painting, Michelangelo, or I'm, looking, I'm listening to Beethoven. Does it make me believe in God? Not necessarily. But like C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves, he says it might not convert you per se, but you know what it will do for you? It will tell you that there is such a thing as beauty, as goodness, as order the world. It will tell you that beauty is a thing. It's real. Now, let me explain to you how we think, how in our world uh, we've developed, you know, uh, before World War II, we put our faith in machines. This is the industrial era. This is called modernism. And we said, there is no God anymore. We can build our machines. We can build our way up to heaven. And then something happened. World War II happened, and we realized that our machines, our babble that we could build up to heaven, turned out to be used for tremendous, tremendous evil. And this is what the postmodern worldview is. The postmodern worldview says that there is evil in the world, undoubtedly. We look at the gulags, we look at the holocaust, we look at the atrocities. We built these better time-saving devices, but we've used them for evil. It shows that there is evil in the world. But here's the thing, millennials, young people, the young people in this audience, you took it a step further. You said not only is there evil in the world, but there is good. There is justice. There is compassion. There is doing good things for people. Nobody believes in good more than millennials today. And in a sense, no one is closer to God, or at least heading in the right direction, than our young people. You young people, you just know. It's like young John, Con John Connor speaking to the Terminator. You can't just hurt people. Why? Because you just can't. You just can't. It's wrong. We have to treat people with respect. You intuitively know what our grandparents threw away and stopped believing. They stopped believing in God because they stopped believing that there was beauty and good and order. So what I'm saying, friends, 
is that as you look at beauty, you're in the forest, you don't know what you believe anymore, but you know what's good. And you say, it's just right to treat my neighbor with kindness. You take a step in the right direction. You say, it's just right to treat people with respect. How do you know? I just, I just know. You take another step in the right direction. It's just right to treat people the way I want to be treated. You take another step in the right direction. It's just right to do the right thing. You keep doing that. It's right to be honest. And the next thing you know, you're bumping your head into somebody's chest. And you're looking at somebody's sandals. And you look up and you behold the face of Christ. I believe that to follow the path of beauty is to wind up at the feet of beauty incarnate. To follow the path of beauty. That's why I love movies. That man, he's so brave of heart. There is no one more brave of heart than Christ. Or you say, he was so humble and he got the scar on his forehead. And the one who shall not be named, he defeated him. Well, there is one who was more humble in beginnings and yet still defeated the one who could not be named. There was one who was as low to the earth as a hobbit and still carried the most tremendous burden around his neck, he was even more humble and yet more honored than even the hobbits themselves. You see, friends, when you see beauty, especially in the movies, you're just getting a glimpse of Christ. That's what I believe. When John, in John chapter 1, verse 3, 1 to 3, He says, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word was with God, and the Word was God. John was the first apologist. He was the first one to say, look, Greeks, you might not believe in Christ just yet, but you believe in something called the Logos. You believe in the Word. Look at the Word then. Look at the Logos. Follow the Logos. You know it to be pure. Take a step. You know it to be right. Take another step. You know it to be beautiful. Take another step. And smack your head bumps into the chest. And you're at the sandals of the one who is the Logos. The one who is beauty fulfilled. This is just the beginning step. So the question for reflection, it's already in your notes, is, What is most beautiful? What is most ordered? What is most good? Look, I mean it when I say to those of you young people in this room, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You leave the shire and you might not be able to find your way back home. Start with what you know in your soul to be true, good, noble, and beautiful. There's this amazing quote from the Russian author Dostoevsky. And he says, I confess, I'm a doubter. I don't like the church. I'm a child of unbelief. The funny thing about Dostoevsky is not only did he not like the church, he didn't like priests, so he wouldn't have liked me. He didn't like, in particular, Siberian priests, which I think is kind of humorous. But he says, in spite of that, inside of me there's one thing that's clear, and that is that there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more profound, there's nothing more attractive, more reasonable, more courageous, more perfect than the person of Christ. 
And so as you leave the Shire, you'll forget the Sunday school lessons, but you will be reintroduced in a new way with new eyes. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See the person of Jesus. You will see one who is more profounder, more attractive, more reasonable, more courageous. I, I, really, I really guarantee, I really guarantee, read the Gospels. And here's the thing. A lot of people like to come away and say, Jesus, yeah, he really was something. He really was something. That Jesus, he was miraculous. He was wonderful. Nobody spoke the way he did. Even secular atheists believe that. But they won't say he was the son of God. They will say he was a great teacher. Here's the thing. Either he was, a te- either he was the son of God or he was nothing. He never gave us the option. He never gave us that middle way option. Just a great teacher. He never said and never claimed to be a teacher. He claimed he was one thing and one thing only, the Son of God, Messiah. And if that's the case, either we take this great moral teacher at his word or he was a raving lunatic. There is no middle ground. Follow beauty and stand at the feet of the one who is more than just a great teacher. Second clue. So, You've followed this first clue, at least, I'm not saying that beauty is going to save your soul. Understand, I'm not saying that listening to Beethoven is going to convert you to Christianity. But in some ways, it'll get you in the general right direction. In the general right direction, you understand that there's beauty. You understand the second clue, the second breadcrumb is darkness. Darkness. I actually do believe that darkness is the path back to God. Here's the thing, many religions, many religions try to separate us from the darkness. Many religions will try to take the darkness out of us. Christianity is the one religion, it's the one religion that will step into the darkness and transform it from within. When it says in John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it, what we are talking about is an experience, well, there's no experience that we can go through, no matter how dark or how difficult, that God does not live there already. When I was a student, one of the things that really fascinated me was this this theology uh, written by African Americans. Written by a theologian named James Cone. And James Cone wrote something called a theology of blackness. What does it mean to be black? You see, in our culture, we talk about blackness and equate it with darkness. And yet what James Cone did was he took blackness and darkness and he made it, in a, he, he, he interpreted it in a way so that Christ lives in that, that actually blackness of being is to be closer to Christ than ever before. Blackness of being is to identify with the God who suffers, who understands the experience of blackness, so to speak. What we're talking about is that God lives in the darkness. Let me share with you a story, illustrate what I mean. In my sophomore year, I think it was my sophomore year, uh, I was living in an apartment by myself. Well, actually, I had a roommate. Uh, I think he was gone for the summer. Uh, And alongside my fine art studies, I was also learning philosophy. New York City somewhere downtown, 
learning philosophy. I mean, it was, it was really hard. I was depressed and confused, and I really felt like I didn't know the way home. I couldn't lie to myself anymore. I said, I don't know if I can still be a Christian because I've already heard and learned too much. I've learned so much that I don't know if it's possible to still be a Christian anymore. And it must have been, I don't, I don't know, it was late enough, but it was late enough to be early. Um, the sun wasn't coming up yet. It would be 3 or 4 a.m., couldn't sleep, wrestling whether I was still a Christian, and I went out for a walk. And here's the thing, New York City is always noisy, but at 4 a.m., it's actually really quiet. And I was walking uh, downtown, actually somewhere near the Stuyvesant area. And as I was walking near there, thinking, trying to figure out if, I, if there was a way back to faith, I sat down on a, on a park bench, and I heard something that shocked me. I heard a bird chirping. And it wasn't just chirping. This bird in New York City, you don't hear birds singing in New York City. You never hear that. But this thing was like full-throated, just bursting out its song in the middle of the night, defiant against the noise and against all of the arguments and the reasonings and all the different things that were pounding my head. The voice of a bird, a light will shine in the darkness and it will not be overcome. Young people, if you forget anything I say today, just remember that. There is a light. It shines in the darkness. It lives in the darkness, and it will not be overcome. You know, when I say that darkness is the second breadcrumb back, back to God, the second clue, you know what I'm essentially saying? I'm saying, young people, if you remember these words, don't be scared of the dark. Christ lives there and will stay with you in those darkest places. Now today, I understand now. It wasn't just a matter of sticking my fingers in my ears and saying, la, 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 I don't want to listen anymore. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I'm a... It wasn't even a matter of that anymore. I understand now. I understand what I was learning. I understand why it was not correct. I understand and I can, I can argue back with it. But there's a time when, when, you, don't, when you, don't, you can't stand up against Nietzsche. What do you say to that? God is dead. How do you answer that? A light will shine for you in the darkness, and it will not be overcome. Just remember that. Your darkness is where you will find God. Your blackness of being is where you will find God the most. That's the second question for reflection. Where would you least expect to find God? He is there. That's why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because there's nowhere I can go, nowhere I can hide that is not touched by the gospel of Christ. Again, the gospel doesn't take us out of the darkness. It goes into the darkest places. It touches, it lives there. It transforms from within. The third and the last clue is humanity. We are the last clue. So, if I can just start from the top again. You're lost in the forest. You've spun around and you don't know where the general direction back home is. Begin with beauty, number one. 
beauty will at least get you in the right direction because you know that there is something in this world that is called good. You take a next step. Step into your darkness. You're not afraid of your darkness. God lives there. He will meet you there. But the third step is humanity. Religions will try to separate us from our humanity. It will try to take our souls and send us off into uh, reincarnation or into a new life or into another state of being. Christianity loves us just exactly the way we are. It comes down. God took on human flesh. This is what we Christians believe. Who you are as a human is exactly what God wants for you. Now, your body might not be perfect. You might suffer from things. But the day comes, this is what we Christians believe, that we will be made perfect in our humanness with glorified bodies. You know, in the very beginning of the Bible, God created. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the garden. But what did He put in the center of the garden? Did he put a totem pole? Did he put a statue? Did he put himself on a throne? In the center of the garden, he placed us, an image of God. We bear his image. What I'm saying, friends, is that in Christianity, you have a religion like no other that dignifies what it means to be human. It dignifies your humanity. There is no room for low self-esteem. There is no room for shame. Low self-esteem, shame, there's no room for those things in our Christian faith. Why? Because God became man. Conclude with this last story. The first Pixar movie, who knows what it is, what it was. It was a bug's life, I think, I believe. And a bug's life is a story about ants. These ants, they're like um, suffering under the harsh domination of who? <laughs> the grasshoppers. And they're like, yeah, you're just ants. You're just a bunch of ants. And isn't that a funny telling analogy? Because we say that. We're like, you're just like a bunch, you're just an ant. When I was in Detroit last week, I was on the 40, 45th floor or something like that in the hotel room, looking down on all of these people like ants and wondering, is there any significance? Do they live significant lives? Of course they do. They're not just ants. That's the moral of the story. That's why Fleck, in the end, you know, he pushes up against the grasshopper and says, we're not just ants. We do amazing things. We have significance. Christianity is the one religion that will look down from heaven and not say they're just ants. They're just ants. It will say every single life has meaning. It will come down from the 45th floor down to the first level and say, I want to meet you in person. I want to shake your hand. I want to feel your sweat. I want to smell you, live with you. I want to, in fact, be you, be with you, be one of you. That's not far-fetched. God becoming man in Christ? Yes. 
This is somebody that took that long elevator, popped his ears twice all the way down, and came on the ground level and said, no, humanity, you are not just ants. You have significance. I, this third piece, this is, what, this is what seals the deal for me. Why am I a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Because every religion wants to get us up to the 45th floor, to the C-suite, to the penthouse. There is one religion that will take the elevator down to be with us ants here on ground level and see the significance in your life. I close with two thoughts. Grown-ups reflect, why would God become human? Why would He become human? He became human so that you can no longer have this thing called shame. So that he can take away your low self-esteem. So that he can take away this thing where you're beating yourself up. And you're saying, I'm just an ant. The second thing I want to say, young people. (laughs) I mean, how timely is it? We, We start this cycle with young people in our audience and then we decide to talk about apologetics. If you forget anything I say, I want you to remember this. Young people. Threads, not threads, uh, youth group, youth group, listen. Close your eyes. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. Find your way back to Christ. He will always be there more human than ever, more real than ever, and most good, the most good. Let's close our eyes. So there you have it, three easy arguments for how to convince all of your coworkers and friends how to believe in God. I wish it were that easy. Apologetics is not about convincing people. It's about living right. They won't remember what you say, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Do you want to win over a friend to the faith? Do you want to convince someone? Love them. Be a good friend. Embody goodness, order, beauty, harmony, kindness, the golden rule. Embody those things. You will be a living clue back to Christ himself. You will be a living breadcrumb that will lead others to Christ. Live well, friends. Live well at work. They watch, they see, and they know. Jesus, we worship you and we lay our lives at your feet. No one deserves our worship more. We sing these songs of praise to you. You are glory incarnate. You are beauty. 
Help us, grown-ups, Lord, to testify to the light just as John the Baptist did. To testify to the light, to present to the world a living witness, a living breadcrumb. Help us, Lord, through our ethical living, through challenging systems of wrong, disorder, disharmony, through living faithfully and patiently in the midst of those. And now, Lord, I also pray for the young among us, and I ask that you guard them in the name of Jesus. Guard their minds wherever they go, the wanderings of their thoughts and their explorations. Guard them, I pray. And when the day comes, when they actually step foot out of this shire, Lord, I pray that you would protect and watch over them. Whisper to them quietly, but passionately and fervently in the dark that even though they don't know what they believe or if they ever can't come to that place, that they will hear the stirring words, I love you, I love you, I love you. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Will you follow me and be my disciple? I pray now in the name of Jesus, start today, Lord. Start today to make disciples out of our young people. Lord, in the end, seal these words, these three apologetics that lead back to you at the feet of Christ. Lord, if it was difficult to understand, make it clear. If it was hard for us to grasp, Lord, make it real in our lives. Not just ideas, but true. You are really the one thing that is good, beautiful, and noble. Nothing more finer. And therefore, we worship you, Lord. And we worship you now. We will worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.